Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bassini, represented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, Derek Bodner is here. I have to talk about the 76ers with someone, and luckily I'm friends with the person who I consider to be the absolute uh, be-all, end-all knowledge of the Sixers and everything that is happening within the organization, Derek Bodner. Derek, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Sam. I'm doing well. I feel like this has been a very strange 76ers season to cover. Uh, before we get into the recent happenings, let's just start there. What has the 76ers season been like uh, in terms of covering them and just from the inside? Yeah, so that, I mean, this has been a, a strange season. You know, I think expectations have a way of changing just about everything about a team from how fans react to the pressure the coaching staff feels to the frustrations of the players, and I think that impacts the Sixers in every which way. You know, I think this is, for a lot of Sixers fans, this has not been an enjoyable season because they came in with such high expectations and reaching those has been a struggle. I think there is a lot of pressure on everyone in the organization from, you know, I don't know if if Joel Embiid is having as much fun because I think life is a little bit tougher for him with the loss of J.J. Redick and Jimmy Butler. I don't know if Brett Brown, you know, I think there's stress that his job is under so much scrutiny and is is maybe not very secure. And, and Brett will tell you that he's on the hot seat every year he's been in Philadelphia, but it has to wear on you at some point. I don't think the seat has ever been hotter. And I think that, I mean, like I said, I think that impacts just about everything, you know, about my job. At the end of the day, I, I come in, I talk about basketball, I leave. It's in no way a problem, but I do think it impacts the players, the coaching staff, the fans, and how all of this is sort of perceived. It feels from the outside like it's been a roller coaster, uh, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, and right now we're at a pretty real valley where if I was a 76ers fan, I would feel pretty shitty about the way that things are trending uh, insofar as I think over the last like nine games, they have a negative 6.2 rating, even though they've won four of those games. Uh, ben Simmons obviously is dealing with some sort of back issue that it seems like we could hear that Ben Simmons is out for six weeks or we could hear that Ben Simmons is out for, you know, two weeks and anything in between would feel pretty reasonable. Right. Yep. And Tobias Harris comes down with a knee injury and Joel Embiid still, like you said, doesn't look to be super uh, enthused with what's happening with the way that they're playing on the court. And that's before we even get to the fact that Tobias Harris and Al Horford don't really seem to be fitting. So, has it been as much of a roller coaster for them as it's perceived to be from the outside? Oh, for sure. And roller coaster is definitely the way to describe it because the highs are still there. Like they have beaten, if you take the top four teams in both conferences, they have beaten all eight of those teams. Like they've beaten the Bucks, they've beaten the Clippers, they've be- beaten the Lakers. Every team, every contender you can imagine, they've handled. And they've handled at times. You know, they obviously had these two games against Milwaukee recently, but at times pretty handily. So the upside has still been there. The consistency, you know, I, I've seen this phrase this way, and I don't know who to give credit for, and I apologize for that, but the Sixers can beat the Bucks if the Sixers are playing at the top of their games. In order for the Bucks to beat the Sixers, the Bucks just have to play like the Bucks, And that's very much the way this Sixers teams feel, that they can get up to highs, they can't sustain anything. So they'll come out, and they'll have that game against the Bucks on Christmas Day where they blow the doors off of them, and they'll come back and they'll go 12-12 and over the next 24 games. And part of that is, you know, you've got a 
a Joel Embiid injury in there. You've got a Josh Richardson injury in there. You have a now a Ben Simmons injury at the tail end of that. So the injury has played a factor in that. The fit of Al Horford has played a very big factor in that. And at the end of the day, you still have this team where they have two of the best players in the Eastern Conference, and who knows what can happen in the playoffs if they figure all this stuff out. So it's been it's very much been a roller coaster, yeah. So before we get into the Horford, Harris, Richardson, all of the bench pieces, all that stuff, I do think it's most important to start with Ben and Joel because there are so many people that seem to be on the side of trade one of those two. Uh, and most of the time, I feel like 76ers fans default to Simmons being the one that is traded. I think that's crazy. Uh, I think that you can look at the way Houston has built around its two stars, even though two games in James Harden and Russell Westbrooks that would not seem to be congruent uh, at first glance, you can find a way to build around those guys. I feel the same about Joel and Ben. I think the problem is the pieces around them. Do you feel the same way in regard to Joel and Ben? I actually, and I, 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 it just got published like maybe an hour ago. I wrote an article basically saying exactly that. You know, the Sixers, there's, there's two aspects. You look at the team they had two years ago, and every piece around Embiid and Simmons fit offensively. Uh, from, you know, Dario Scharch, who I think shot 40% from three that year, Robert Covington, J.J. Redick, Ersan Ilyasova, Marco Bellinelli, like they had shooters at every position. And it really unlocked Simmons and Embiid and what they're good at offensively. And it covered up some of their weaknesses and what they can't do. And over the last, you know, two to three years, they've tried to find longer-term pieces that they can add to that core, more two-way players. And in doing so, they've lost much of that shooting identity. And I think they've made some of these weaknesses of Embiid and Simmons a little more pronounced. You know, the fit with Horford has just been, like, when we talk about Embiid having a down year or Embiid and Simmons not being as effective as they used to be, if you strip out the, the time when they're on the court alongside Al Horford, they start looking like they're old numbers pretty quickly. You know, I looked at it recently, I think Embiid's, Free throw attempts per 100 possessions go from like 9 per 100 possessions when Horford's on the court to like 14 when Horford's off the court. And you look at his field goal percentage, it went from like 46% to 53%. And all of a sudden that dominant center that we see a lot of comes back. It was amazing the other night, Al Horford hit a three when he was on uh, on the court alongside Joel Embiid. And it was only the 10th three in 499 minutes that Horford has hit when he's been on the court with Joel Embiid. That's so crazy. He has a 9% usage rate when he's on the floor with Joel Embiid. So really all he's there to do is to space the floor and play defense. And he's not spacing the floor at all because there's, I mean, before that moment, there were nine three-pointers made the entire season. So it's been a it's been a real tough fit. You know, I think a lot of people, the Sixers front office included, first of all, their priority was defense. And you get why. Like, they've had periods over the last two years where you could hunt J.J. Redick. You could get switches onto him. You can get switches onto Marco Bellinelli. You could take Sharch. And, and Ilya Sova, a lot of these guys that we talked about being good offensive fit, you can, you could take them off the dribble. I, I love so it. Let's just let's just do the Horford thing now because okay. I think it's you know it just is what it is. Where did your right? question start? I for, I forgot what got me on that rant anyway. I'm it sorry. It started with Joel and Ben and the yeah. fit, but it, again, like I think it's worth just talking about Al because I think a lot of this team's problems do stem from Al, as you're so very clearly explaining. Yeah, I mean it's just it's it's a lot. They, they went in the direction where they wanted. Five defenders on the court that couldn't be attacked. And they hope they can get enough shooting, enough ball handling, enough passing to be able to do that and not have a huge trade-off. And I, I just think what we've learned, you know, Al spent so much time with pick-and-roll ball handlers in Boston, and that really became his bread and butter. And now you're asking him to spot up and only spot up and not have those, you know, pick-and-pops where he can pull the center out and make plays off the dribble, make passes behind the big man, where you, he can't maybe force that switch and get a post-up, and he has to just be a spot-up corner three-point shooter, and he's looked completely lost. 
So it's it's you, you see what they were going for in the defense and the, the not having anyone that could be attacked. But it just it has not worked, and it's come at the expense of your your two stars, the two people that truly matter. And and like you said, the fit between Horford and 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 or I'm sorry, the fit between Simmons and Embiid is so tenuous to begin with. Like you've got a post up big man who really might be like when you talk about post up big men today. He's not only the preeminent, he's really the only one who bases all of his offense, or the vast majority of his offense, out of the post. So you start off with an archetype that is just not used anymore, and then you add a non-shooting point guard, every other piece around that has got to fit, or it's going to look clunky, and this whole year has been clunky. And I do think a lot of the problems, look, Simmons and Embiid aren't perfect fits offensively, and they haven't made the growth that they need to. You know, we can see, you mentioned Houston. We can go back to the LeBron-era heat. Like, there are, are, are... Talent groups of talent that do not fit perfectly but work because the talent is so overwhelming. And Beaton Simmons haven't reached that level yet, but I do think they have enough talent where they can do what they're good at if every other piece around them fits, and we're just nowhere near that. So for reference on how post-dominant Joel Embiid is, uh, 35.6% of his offense this season has come in the post, and he's just by far among the players that are in the top 20 in and that's not offense. like like he's so, by far the most efficient. So like it's not bad offense at all to do this. And, and not only that, but like a lot of those other guys at the top of the post offense, you'll see as like Lamarcus Aldridge or Chris Dapps Porzingis, right. guys who might start in the post but then turn around and face up or turn around and shoot a jumper. No, Joel's lowering his shoulder and bulldozing you over, and it's a, right. that's very tough to do in today's NBA. Right. The only guys that I would call like high usage stars that are you know, basically in this realm. LaMarcus Aldridge, 32.3% of his possessions are in the post. He is, like you said, more of a pull-up guy uh, from the post. Anthony Davis, 22.8% of his possessions in the post. Definitely not a guy that's putting his shoulder down and burying. Uh, Nikola Jokic, 24.4%. He is looking to pass out of it a lot, but he is the guy that will put his shoulder down and bury you if he has to. Another just kind of note here in general, uh, among the, let's call them, 18 guys, there are 18 guys that have at least 18% of their offense coming in the post uh, this season. 20, so like outside of the top 20 guys here in the NBA, there are only 20 of them that are posting up 18% of the time on their offensive possessions. Joel is doing it literally double that amount of time. So the fact that Joel is posting as much, it does create just general problems with this fit with Ben Simmons, right? Like there is, there is a tenuous fit there, but I don't think it's impossible to be worked around whenever you consider, Hey, you can stagger their lineups. Hey, you can figure out other ways to make this work when they're on the court. You can use uh, Joel as like a second side post-up guy, have Ben Simmons uh, as your screener, basically have him roll Joel can like be ready to try and seal someone off in the dunker spot and then go from there. Right. Like there are a lot of ways to involve these guys, but I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that they don't, they chose Al Horford over going out and getting a ball handler, a guy that can actually break down a defense in half court settings. And that to me is kind of the critical fault here. Uh, that is why this offense looks like a clogged toilet late in games. Uh, and I think that that's why, you know, late in games in the playoffs, we're probably going to see it look even worse unless Joel just flat out dominates his man in the post. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's, it's real tough to be a consistent post scorer today. And we can go from rule changes to just a 
how but, analytics has changed the game. By the way, Joel is doing it. He like is. He's he is. averaging 1.11 points per possession in the post right now. There is like literally no other player that has posted up like at least a hundred times this season that is really even in that ballpark in terms of post dominance. Like Brooke Lopez is at 95 possessions and he's at 1.105 right now. Like he's close. No one else is like Jokic is at 1.03. That's like seven points per 100 possessions better. And, and like Jokic, obviously, I think is a better player overall in the post just because he's a passer and uh, his effect on the offense is a little bit greater. But in terms of just dominance as a post scorer, Joel Embiid is by far, by far the best that the NBA has right now. And I think that the Sixers are right to utilize him in that way. Oh, for sure. It's just like you bring up Horford and they chose him to spend their money on him. Well, not only that, but they, they the previous two off seasons, they avoided handing out multi-year contracts because they were waiting. They wanted to be flexible for that one guy to pounce on. So not only was Horford the one that they chose this summer, but he was also effectively the one they chose in the previous two summers as well. And you look at this roster yeah. and every piece on this team, literally every piece other than Embiid and Simmons, and Furkan Korkmaz is, I think, the only other one. Nobody else has been on this team from two years ago. And, and, and by the way, the roster. they declined Furkan's option oh, yeah. year at one point. It was an almost accident <laughs> that he's still here, yeah. So it's, yeah, oh no, it's like a full stop accident that Furkan is still there, in my opinion. So it's just, there's, there's been so much turnover. The pieces don't fit. They've never really had a chance to, you know, sort of, of, of mesh on the court. And it, I mean, it, it looks clunky at times offensively, which isn't entirely. So. On, on the other hand, they do also look dominant at times defensively too, which is the real duality of this team. Yeah, and like part of the problem is that I don't think they've been as good defensively as I expected this year. Like they're really good on defense. I expected this to be like a no doubt top three defense in the NBA. And I think that when you make moves like this, you basically have to be that to have a chance to compete. I just wonder like is are some of the fit things on offense uh, starting to creep into the defensive side of the floor in a way that causes issues? Uh both in terms of role allocation on offense and just excitement to play with one another, and in terms of they're missing a crazy amount of shots and playing super big, uh, does that hinder transition defense to a significant manner, uh, just in terms of the way that a team operates on the floor? Yeah, I mean, their their defense has been up and down. You know, I do think when they've been healthy, and I think Josh Richardson is an important part of that, and he's missed a lot of time. They've been good. To be honest, their transition defense has been better than I would have expected. Although their their offense rebounding hasn't been as as dominant as I would have expected either. But, you know, I think I've seen them get up for important games. I think their consistency hasn't been there. But when Embiid's been on the court, they're still they're still when that offense that that starting five, the old starting five, has been on the court. Uh, you know, there's I think they're giving up like ninety eight or something points per one hundred possessions. They're only right. scoring about ninety nine or a hundred. So it's it hasn't been it hasn't been good overall. But their their defense has been great. It's been now you've got to try to, to figure out first of all we got to figure out how long Ben Simmons is out for. <clears throat> uh, but then you have to figure out you know do you promote Alec Burks or Furkan Korkmaz or how much can you get away with one of these bad defenders in place of Horford to balance that out a little bit better? I think it's going to be interesting. You know I think I think I think Tobias Harris made some steps earlier in the year defensively. I think he's regressed a little bit here of late. I think Ben Simmons has taken a massive step defensively and he was already a really good defensive player. I think he yeah. should be a a first team. At worst, second team all defensive player. And Embiid, I think if, if you want to point to some variance in the Sixers defense, I think you could probably start with Embiid, who one night still looks like the best defender on the planet, and then the other night just looks like the energy isn't entirely there. And I sort of expect in the playoffs that to, uh, 
even out a little bit. Yeah, and I've been like a big proponent of this 76ers team throughout the whole year. I've been like, yeah, like I'm not real worried yet. I'm not going to jump ship yet. And, you know, I think that they just got through a really difficult part of their schedule. And now they're going to ease into what is one of the, I believe, five easiest schedules to finish the season, right? So they should be able to rack up wins even if Ben is out. Right? Like, you still have Joel Embiid. You still have Al Horford, who theoretically might be able to step into a slightly better role with Ben out. Uh, Tobias Harris might be able to slip into a better role uh, offensively, into a higher usage uh, pull-up role offensively with Ben out. So, I still expect them to win. I mean, they're probably going to win 50 games. They're 35 already, and they have, you know, however many left. What, they have 25 left, right? Yeah, no, they. I, and I think I think I checked after the Milwaukee game, so maybe it changed after last night's games. But I think they had the easiest strength of schedule of anybody left. So yeah, they should certainly rack up. You know, it wouldn't shock me if 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 Simmons were healthy, I could see them going nineteen and, and six, five. twenty and five. Yeah. yeah, like there's it's a really easy schedule, and they have been. I mean, for all all we talk about, they have been flat out dominant at home. So it's just finding a way to be competent in the twelve road games or whatever they have left, which is has been a struggle. But yeah, no, I think in terms of regular season wins, I still think they'll probably end up 52, 53, somewhere in that range. Like, I think they're they're going to be a good team. The question always comes down to, can they execute against the best defenses in the league? Can they execute in the playoffs when it matters? And right now, can they avoid that 4-5 seed, which would give them the Celtics in the second round of playoffs? And the question to all of those, or the answer to all those questions, I'm well, they, not they'd too get, confident. Well, they'd hit Milwaukee in the second round of the playoffs to the 4-5. Right. Yep. That's why yeah. they, they want to avoid that 4-5. Right. So they don't hit the wall. So I want to talk about Ben, and I want to talk about the fact that he, for some unfathomable reason to me, played against Milwaukee. If his back was, like, very clearly acting up. I mean, there was a sideline report that said he was going to go back and get treatment in between his stints on the court with his back. Uh, there's the fact that uh, Kyle Newbeck, I believe, confirmed that from within the organization. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Did you end up confirming that uh, throughout the organization and publish that somewhere? I did not. Uh, Kyle did. I, I assumed ESPN had that on good authority when they reported it. So, no, I did not. Yeah, I just wanted to give you the credit if you did. Nope, um, no credit. But that's crazy to me to play Ben. Like, that is insane to me that you would see this as like, oh, it's a uh, – yeah, I almost feel like – the Sixers to play him under those circumstances had to feel like this is a statement game in the 57th game of the season against a team in Milwaukee that we're going to have to beat in the playoffs. So Ben, whatever you can give us, give it to us. Uh, What were they doing playing him in that game this weekend on Saturday? I mean, that is a 100% fair question. I do not have a a satisfactory answer to that, Uh, especially with a back. Like that is such a tricky thing. It has such consequences if you get it wrong. You would think that of all the injuries, that would be one you err on the side of caution over. It was, you know, I don't know if, if they just thought he couldn't re-aggravate it, if they thought it was something he could play through and wasn't at risk for anything further, or if it was just that they were so enthusiastic about performing well against the Bucks on national TV that they threw caution to the wind. Uh, I mean, that's a, you know, this is something where we should find out more later today on the severity of it, and this will be a huge talking point going forward. Uh, but no, I have no, I have no good answer for why he was on that court on Saturday. Well, it just the problem with that with the 76ers is that it goes into their past with injuries, which has been yep. what do, do we want to call it? To be fair, spotty 
to be maybe a bit less uh, fair, and I'm not sure that they get the benefit of the doubt in these circumstances. Uh, it's been a fucking train wreck in how they've dealt with injuries in the past. I mean, how, where where do we think that comes from, from within the organization? Like, it is unfathomable to me that they would continue to make these just silly mistakes in regard to injuries. Yeah, I mean, so the I guess for the national audience, this is sort of what happened with Joel Embiid three years ago with a torn meniscus. You know, at the time, they, they called it a bone bruise. They sent him back out there, I believe, against Houston on national TV. He ended up having to miss a couple more weeks, and then it came out that it was a torn meniscus as well, uh, which they did not think was causing his pain, but he ended up needing surgery on. So there is some precedent here for them putting players back out there too early on national TV games in the middle of the season that don't really matter. And again, it's always tough for me to say because like sometimes you could be listening to your doctors and your doctors could say that there's no risk of further reaggravation and the doctors are just wrong. But it does look very bad when this has happened multiple times now. And look, I guess some people listening will be like, well, they changed front offices. Not really. They changed the guy at the top of the front office and everybody else within the organization is pretty much the same as it was for the last four or so years. So yeah, it looks like a repeated mistake and it really is just something where, look, okay, yeah, maybe you're trying to fight to get out of that four seed. Maybe you're trying to fight for home court advantage in the first round. It's not worth what you're risking. It's just like there is no – you look at this roster, and we now talk about Horford, who's now a $109 million backup center. Well, they're backup to Ben Simmons. There's a couple different options you can go to. They're all on minimum salary contracts. They have not invested the resources in secondary ball handlers that you can withstand this kind of a loss and still be competitive in the playoffs. Like there is – there is Ben plays – 36 minutes a night. He plays pretty much every day. He's an Iron Man, And that's allowed them to skate by this real deficiency they have on their roster. You cannot, this is not a, a, a person, I mean, you can never play with a star and play a game where you could lose them. But this is, of all the stars, this is one you definitely cannot lose. They had to be more careful with the situation. And we'll see whether or not uh, it comes back to bite them. All right, Derek, before we move on, Basketball, hockey, and golf seasons are still in full swing, and you can find all of the exclusive odds uh, with our partners at BetOnline.ag. They have been in the industry for over 20 years, providing customers with the first two market odds and giving you the ability to bet anytime, anywhere. Head on over to BetOnline.ag and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit and have a little fun with some betting action today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Derek, let's move on. So we're, we're going to talk about who the most important guy on the 76ers is uh, at some point, because I think there's a pretty real case that it's been, to be honest. Uh, I'll maybe close with that question to you. But before we even get there, I do want to just discuss the idea of what this front office has chosen to do and what the recourse should be in this circumstance. Because on some level – Look, they're going to win. Like we said, they're going to win 50 games, right? And they have these two stars. And uh, ultimately, it's probably going to depend on how far they go in the in the playoffs. But this team clearly just hasn't worked in a way that is just very, very transparent and obvious to anyone who watches them. Like even me being high on them, uh, I can't get past the fact that they don't look like a cohesive unit out there. I don't know what their best lineup is 60 games into the season, which is like just unforgivable to me in so many ways. Like, and it's not because there have been trades that change the way that this 
operates, right? There's just no like they we haven't known what the Sixers' best lineup is the whole year. Basically, I don't think. I mean, would would you agree with that? Like in terms of what their best closing five is? Oh, for sure. I mean, that, that's that's at the heart of like I said a little while ago. Their their original starting lineup has like a 100 offensive rating and a 98 defensive rating. That's not that's not good enough. That should be theoretically your best starting five, and that's not good enough. So Brown came out, and, and to your point about them not knowing what that best five will be, they came out. They benched Al Horford. They started Furkan Korkmaz. Korkmaz had a bad first half. They benched him, and they've started Glenn Robinson in the third since then, the, the two games or whatever since then. And they picked up Glenn Robinson in the third, like, what, two weeks ago? So, no, they have no real idea what their best five is. They're going to probably try, end up trying a few options. If Ben Simmons misses significant time, that further complicates it because now you've got two spots that are up in the air. And you're right. it's a, it's a You know, I think part of this problem, they didn't want to admit that the Horford mistake was a mistake. So, yeah, and, I mean, that's, that's a big thing I wanted to bring up, too. Do you think they should have blown this up at the deadline? Because, you know, a team in Sacramento this summer did a similar thing, right, where they blew up their moves from this summer, right? Like they realized Dwayne Dedman was a mistake. They moved him. They realized Trevor Ariza was a mistake. They moved him. And now they're in a better spot for it, in my opinion. Like, that, I don't know if they're going to be better as a team, but they certainly have better flexibility going forward than what they did. Should the Sixers have done the same thing? I understand that, like, admitting fault on Al Horford is different than admitting fault on Trevor Ariza and Dwayne Dedman. But do you think that they should have blown this up? Because I really do. I genuinely believe that they should have blown this thing up at the deadline. I mean, I think they're going to uh, – I'm not. I think they almost have to in the offseason. Like, if, I mean, for two reasons. One, you don't want $109 million invested in a backup center who you, you're not sure can play next to Embiid. That's a minor misallocation of resources. But if you knew that, then why don't you do it now? Well, I, it, it's, I just don't – I okay. Uh, so at first, I don't know what was out there and how much what, – what kind of an asset they would have had to give up to move him. But also, like, I do think they're still of the mindset that they might need Al Horford in the playoffs, specifically against the Bucks. I think the Milwaukee's the one team that they're looking at and said, we could not only – Use Al Horford. We could see him going back in the starting lineup because we need his defense so much, because we need another big man. Whether you have Joel Embiid guarding Giannis or Horford guarding Giannis, you need another big man then on Lopez. Keep him off the glass. Keep him from attacking mismatches in the post. I think they're looking at that matchup as saying, this is why we went out there and we got Al Horford. We still believe that Al is the player. We thought he was. The fit is bad, yes, but we want to see if he can help us in this playoff series, which we've basically built our entire season around competing in. So I think that's where their head is at. Where my head is at, I would have to really know what kind of deals were out there. But from the sounds of it, it doesn't seem like he was really on the table anyway. And I would have I would have put him on the table. Right, yeah. right. That, that's kind of what I come back to. So, like, if you're the Clippers and you need a center, it, like, you, you don't need one, but Al Horford is the kind of move piece that really works for them, right? Uh, you could do something like Mo Harkless, Rodney Magruder, and, like, another piece, Mostly right? expiring stuff. Right. And for the Clippers, like Al Horford fits what they're doing perfectly, like to a T. He gives them another guy to throw on Anthony Davis. And he is offensively like kind of a ball mover on a team that actually needs someone that can move the ball. Right. So if you're the Clippers, like that's the kind of guy I think that you actually see as an asset. Like I, I don't know that you have to give up something to get off of Al Horford in a lot of different circumstances is my point, I guess. Uh, yeah. if, if you're uh-huh. the Kings, uh, you know, can you, instead of moving Atlanta, moving him to Atlanta for while giving up two second round picks, like 
do they see him as an asset? Like, can you go get Dwayne Dedman and I don't know, like Corey Joseph and like maybe try and shore up the ball handler for a year and a half, uh, break it up into smaller chunks in terms of what you can move and get off of a year of long-term salary. Like, is, is that something that's valuable to the Kings maybe? Like I assume there's no way that they would have even entertained throwing Bogdan Bogdanovich. But like, I wonder if you could say, Hey, we'll take on Corey Joseph and we'll take on Dwayne Dedman. If you give us Bogdan and we'll throw in a first round pick, if you take on Al. Yeah. I mean, they were like, they were interested in Al last summer. So certainly right. that's why there'd be some interest. Yeah. That's another reason. Like I bring them up. Like, I just wonder if there are teams out there currently that would not see him as some ridiculously negative asset and would just see him as a guy. Oh, well he's playing out of position in Philadelphia next to a post-up center and next to Ben Simmons who can't shoot. Uh, it just wasn't a fit. He's still Al yeah. Horford. Let's go get him. Yeah, no, and I think I I largely fall on that side of the conversation too. Like I don't think Al Horford like maybe he's gotten five percent worse because he's gotten a year older, but like I think Al Horford is still largely Al Horford. He just doesn't have a pick and roll ball handler to create shots for him, and he's playing next to a post up big where he's just spacing out the corner. Like I think he's I think it is mostly fit for his drop of production. Yeah, I mean it's kind of crazy to me that uh, they decided not to really even explore. What was out there for Al? Or uh, certainly if they did, they kept it quiet uh, so as to not potentially you know, piss off Al after he signed there. But like the argument that, oh, they just signed him this past offseason, it would look really bad to agents that Al Horford is already moving. Yeah, no, I don't think that holds water in this case because like nobody there looks fucking happy. With this situation, no, and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Al's not going to be happy in a couple months if he's playing 12 minutes in the playoffs. Like I, I no, I don't. If that was their their reasoning, I, I let's put it this way: I hope it wasn't. So, there's been kind of a discussion as well about what is more harmful: the Al Horford deal or the Tobias Harris deal. I've kind of thought it's just Horford for sure because I think the Harris is uh, a player fits with Embiid and Simmons pretty substantially like I think you can make that work he can be useful in a low usage role next to those guys is like a spot up guy that attacks closeouts or he can be useful next to them or next to one of them in like a more high usage offensive creation role yes they overpaid him that's fine I think it's reasonable to make that statement but I just don't really think there's a case that the Harris deal is going to be more harmful than Al I mean like what are your thoughts on this long term yeah, in terms of pure contract, I think Al's contract is more harmful. In part because you can't put him in a position where he's going to look appealing to the rest of the league. But in part because it's just, I mean, it, I, I let's put it this way: I think Horford is a better player in a ignoring team context and role. I think Horford is a better player than Tobias Harris. But I think Tobias Harris is in a spot where he can at least be productive on your team, and he's younger, so there's going to be more league-wide interest in him. I think when you start talking about the the draft capital the Sixers had to include in that trade to get him to get the rights to overpay him then we can start talking about which one's more more damaging oh, not uh, only did they give up two draft picks yeah. but Landry Shamit, who's a perfect fit on what you need around Embiid and also on a rookie scale contract oh yeah if, I don't even think it's a question like I think that that aspect of it it was a deal that the Sixers would like to have back I think yeah like I, I can't I don't even really think there's a case that they would like maybe publicly they would make the case that they're happy with it but like 
I would almost guarantee that if you asked them privately, they'd be like, yeah, we met, we probably fucked that up. Yeah. But if, if you just looked at just contract, then it, like I said, it's going to be tough to put Allen in a position where you're, you can really increase his trade value. Uh, and it, you're not going to get much value from him on your team. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what have you thought of Tobias Harris this year? I think that's a very real question that some people are struggling with. Like, I feel like he's given them essentially what was, what should have been anticipated at least like he's averaging 19 points a game on 47, 36, 80, right? Like we know that defensively he's not some incredible player. We know that offensively at 27 years old, he probably doesn't have a leap in him to be some 24 point a game scorer whenever he has Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid next to him. Like I, I feel like he's given them over the long haul what should have been expected. Yeah. And I mean, look, he's, he's, he's been, fine. He's been what Tobias Harris is. His shooting has dropped a little bit, but not like, like he's still making 36% of his threes. Struggled at the beginning, but he's come up here of late. I think his defense at the beginning of the season was improved. I think it's dropped off a little bit, not like substantially improved, but better than it was in years past. I think it's dropped off a little bit here of late, but he's by and large Tobias Harris. I think the problem is more that at times he is your best perimeter scoring option. He doesn't have the court vision or the creativity or the the diverse shot profile to really be that. He should be your second best perimeter scorer. And if he's in that role, I think he'd be fine. The question or the problem is is twofold. First, he's just making too much money, and that was the negotiation this summer. And also, he's just it, it's less of what he is and more of the fact that you just don't really have that natural pick and roll live ball or live dribble shot creator that would make sort of a lot of these pieces fit in the half court. So I think so, it's, it's, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you, so are you with me in that scenario then that you believe the Sixers biggest issue right now is that lack of live ball handler creator mm-hmm. uh, to make all of the pieces fit together? Cause that's, yep. I mean, like before the trade deadline, like I was clamoring, whatever you have to do to get Chris Paul, I outside of trading Ben and Joel, like I'm moving it to go get Chris Paul. Cause I think yeah, that makes them like the title favorite, but look, you know, is, Oklahoma city, like I'll tell you, like Oklahoma city was not interested in moving Chris Paul. So no, if, like, you would, if you would have said that like before the season, they might've been, but not, not after the season he's had. Right. And, and like, even so, like if I was Oklahoma city, I probably would have moved him. Like if, if the Sixers were offering Al Horford to make the salaries match and, you know, hopefully Al Horford would have been happier going to play for Billy Donovan, uh, you know, his college coach. Then he would have been just going somewhere else, right? You move Al Horford. I would be willing to toss in like Matisse Thibel. I'd be willing to toss in whatever I've got to do to get Chris Paul. Cause I think that that makes them the title favorite in at least. Mm, do I think they're the title favorite over Milwaukee? No, but I think they're at least a top four team in the NBA at that stage that has yeah. a chance to win a title in a relatively open season. Yeah, and that, that's sort of what makes this whole roster construction perplexing because at one point it felt like they did believe in that. I mean, that's why they went out there and they traded up to get Markel Fultz. And that's right. where they set off the train reaction of where we are. Like, people will talk about Ben Simmons and whether he's a point guard. Well, I think at one point they wanted a pick-and-roll ball handler to put next to Ben. And here over the last couple of, of the last month or two, we've seen Ben used a lot more as a screen setter and as a role man, sort of in that short role game that Blake Griffin did so much. And we've seen a lot of success with that. Now, if you put a real pick-and-roll threat there and not Howell Neto or Alec Burks, like, what does that look like? How much more can you unlock in the Sixers' offense? And the fact that you, they went from pursuing Markel Fultz as, like, the third piece on what they thought was going to be a contending team for a long time yep. to we're fine if, what, Josh Richardson, our second-best ball handler in the starting lineup? Like, there's no – if you look at the, the real positive passers, people with court vision and creativity on this team, 
You have Ben Simmons. Yep. And then your second best is what? Al Horford? And I think it's unquestionably Al Horford. Like, there's yeah. just, there's, there's no real, like, Tobias Harris can come off pick and roll, but he's trying to get to his pull-up game. Josh Richardson right. can come off pick and roll. He's getting that mid-range pull-up. Now you and have neither, Alex Burks. Neither at least Al he can shoot nor... a three, but he's still right. trying to get a shot off the dribble. I'm sorry, go ahead. Neither Al nor Ben either are half-court creators on the move. Right. right. Like these are guys that like Ben, I think is best as a creator in transition uh, and as a passer in transition or whenever you use, you're using him as like a short roll threat and letting him receive the ball at the foul line and letting him tear a defense apart from the inside. Right. Same with Al Horford, honestly. Like I think that was basically his primary role was to run dribble handoffs, to short roll, to pick and pop when he was with Boston, when he was so successful, right. Within a, you know, low usage role in Atlanta. It was a different deal because he's more of a high usage player with the Sixers because they lack that on ball creator who can get separation, who can get into the teeth of the defense out of ball screens, out of isolation. That's why this offense just looks so stagnant and looks so perplexingly ugly and lacks ball movement late in games consistently. I think. Nope. I agree. 100%. Yeah, they just need these guys that can actually do something in the half court on offense, especially when games get tighter. And games get tighter once the playoffs come. Like, there's no doubt about that. So I'm just very – I hate the way this roster's been built. And if I was Sixers' ownership, I would seriously be looking at making a change this summer. Like, I feel bad for Elton Brand. I feel bad for a lot of the folks – there in that front office like I actually talked to some of them and like them but like it's I think it's hard to come back from and like I hope a lot, I hope some of them keep their jobs that like weren't involved in this decision making but like it's hard to come back from creating this roster in such a hideous and like high profile manner yeah I mean look here, here here's the way I summed it up in my article today they had when when Brian Colangelo and his crew took over back in spring 2016. They had top draft picks. They had the pick swap in 2017, which eventually became the third overall pick. They had a future first-round pick from the Lakers, which at the time was valued across the league because the Lakers were the Lakers. Uh, They hadn't yet gotten LeBron. So those two picks, and then they also had room for two max salary contracts under their books, and they had trade assets to trade. They had all three ways all three methods of team building to go about and try to grab a third superstar during this window before Ben and Joel's extensions became, you know, push them over the cap, essentially. The end result of that is they use their, their top draft picks on Markel Fultz. They use their premium trade assets on Tobias Harris and then overpaid him drastically. And they used their only real free agency signing of merit, long-term free agency signing on Al Horford, who just got benched because he can't fit your best player. So one of those three players you had to trade to get off of his salary while he's still on a rookie contract. Another one you had to bench because he doesn't fit next to your best player. And the third one is sort of just a guy who's never really played at an all-star level, uh, who's replaceable, and who you overpaid drastically. And look, there's some extenuating circumstances there. Like Markel Fultz is a, it was an edge case of edge case of all edge cases. And we can debate from now until the end of time how much that should have been knowable or not. I loved Markel Fultz coming in the draft. I'll, I'll own that right off the top. But these are decisions where if you don't get these right, and you have all three of those avenues to get just one star piece to put next to the, the two that you inherited, you have to nail one of those three, and they, they didn't. And now they're in a spot where they don't really have – you've got Embiid making a lot of money now. You've got Simmons making a lot of money. Horford and Harris all making a lot of money. 
no premium draft assets left, and the only real long, young player of merit you have on, on your roster is Matisse Thibel, it's going to be hard to reshape this roster now. Your window was over the last three years, and it's it's there's been a lot of misses. Just think about that, like the process, the whole idea of the process and why the 76ers were seen as this up-and-coming team was, A, they had Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, right? But B, they had all of the optionality into the future. They completely whiffed yeah, on every single possible optionality move to build around those two. Like, I, I mean, like maybe you can make a case that the Jimmy Butler trade. I will still defend the Jimmy Butler trade. Well, I not only that, but it, it ended up getting you Josh Richardson too. Like, and if you it just results at, in Josh, yeah. If you just look at that as Dario Saric and Robert Covington for Josh Richardson, I think I probably like Josh Richardson better as a player. Now, it's going to be tough because he's, he only has one more year left on his contract after this one. And because of the Al Horford contract, you're going to be so far into luxury tax territory that it might end up costing you Josh Richardson, and that would be a shame. But yeah, that, that that's maybe the most. On the one hand, I thought Jimmy Butler had the least likely chance of working out because I just I, there was so much concern about Jimmy Butler and aging and his next contract and and all the off court and locker room stuff. But on the other hand, it ended up that being and being the one that's the most defensible because it got you it got you Josh Richardson. So Richardson and and Thibel are the two that you know I think I can say pretty well worked out in their favor. But wait, wait, wait. Like I, Ta- time out on the Matisse move, though. Because even oh, they the, shouldn't the have Matisse had to trade move, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they so. completely screwed up the asset allocation with Matisse because they essentially, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They let the Delegate. entire league know, yeah. basically, that they like Matisse. Well, from... right, they, they let the entire league know that they had no interest in rostering either of their, they had, I think, 33 and 34 in the draft. And everybody right. knew that they didn't want to actually draft anyone and put them on their roster with those picks. Which, by so, the way, is indefensible, again. Yeah, like, no, I agree. But you no, have so more everybody knew if, like Everybody knew they'd be willing to give up that pick if you pressed them for it, too. You, you have Norvell Pell, you have Howell Neto, you had Trey Burke on the roster for a while. I you hear have, you. You have Kyle O'Quinn. Like, in what world should you not be willing to roster 33 and 34? Like, I mean, this goes back to a few years ago when they drafted Anhes Pesechniks solely because uh, he would he, he was willing to stay overseas for a year or two because you just couldn't get rid of Nick Stauskas and use up that roster spot for anything else. Meanwhile, the picks that went immediately after Pesechniks, they'd be useful. They'd be useful. Yeah, because what? It's Kyle Kuzma, Derek White, and someone else? Who else? I get I get some of those drafts picked up or mixed up, but if you go back, yeah, there's so a bunch of names. Um, but yeah, the possession. No, I think I'm. I think I'm off in terms of what that draft was. But you're right. Um, it was just none of what this front office has done over the course of the last two and a half years, other than maybe the Jimmy Butler move, which didn't even work out to the fullest potential of what it could have worked out to. None of it has really seemed competent to me. So here, here, here are the picks immediately after Possessionics: Swanigan, Kuzma. Tony Bradley, Derek White, Josh Hart. Oh, I was right. It was that draft. Okay. That, um, it's just none none of this has worked well, period. Like, there's just not another way to phrase it. Like, even the, you know, you move Mikael Bridges, who I think would be really helpful on this team, for Zaire Smith and that second-round pick. I personally probably – I wrote at the time that I thought it was, like, pretty 50-50 in terms of what was valuable within that deal. Remember, to that 2021 Miami pick, there was a thought that that could be like the quote-unquote double draft or yeah. whatever. Where yeah. And, and uh, that, was, that was the first-round pick. Yeah, that was, it was an, it's an unprotected Miami first-round pick right. where we thought Miami, with all of their long-term deals, might struggle. And we thought that this could be like a double draft. Like, 
look, that deal was not a disaster, but it certainly worked out as a disaster because the Philadelphia 76ers team facility decided to poison Zaire Smith. Like, yeah, what are... I, well, <laughs> I mean, when you phrase it like that, but also, I mean, that, that pick they ended up trading for Tobias Harris, which we've already talked about. Also did not go idea. well. I mean, it's, it's a comedy of errors from their it, front it, office. It feels like, so they looked at, you know, the summer of 2019 is the last time they would be players in free agency because next right. year Ben Simmons contract extension kicks in they're over the cap. And it just right. seems like they, when they went through 2018 and they weren't able to sign LeBron, they weren't able to sign Paul George, they weren't able to get any of these big fish that they chased. It seems like they kind of panicked a little bit and said, okay, well, is Jimmy Butler perfect? No, but he's available, so let's get him. Is Tobias Harris perfect? No, but let's overpay so we can make sure we get him. You, and so we have keep what? his bird rights and whatnot. I, it seems like that's what happened. With Jimmy, though, I actually think the fit is fine. Like, I, I think that you would prefer to have someone who's probably a better shooter, right? But yeah. you do need an end-of-game closer, and I think Jimmy is an end-of-game closer. You know what I mean? And Jimmy is one of the 15 best players in the NBA. So I, I don't even – I don't mind that deal at all. I think that that was a swing – you got Jimmy for a full season, basically. I think he played, what, like 60, 70 games for them? Yeah, it was, it was right? November when the trade happened, yep. Right. So, and what you gave up was Dario Saric, who looks like a rotation player at this stage. Robert Covington, who's a good starter, and you gave up a second-round pick. The price was right, and then it resulted in being able to sign and trade him to Miami for Josh Richardson. And I like the fact that they weren't afraid to sign and trade him to Miami uh, like some teams would be because Miami was in the same conference. Yeah, right. and what 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 made that the initial trade for Butler more defensible is you sort of you you knew you had that Miami option in your back pocket. You knew Miami was pursuing him hard in November of last year when you know when Butler was traded to the Sixers, Miami was hot for him. They wanted him. You knew they were going to be over the cap, so you knew it would have to be a sign and trade. And you had a reasonable degree to know that Jimmy Butler wanted to go to Miami too. So you you could you could have sort of predicted everything that happened where you had a fallback plan if Butler didn't work out here. And to their credit, they did predict that. So that I agree. Smart. With yeah, it was, it was a fine deal. But everything else has been an abject failure. And I don't even think that, like, the Markel Fultz draft decision was terrible. Because I'm with you. Like, I thought Fultz was a stud. I loved him. Oh. I, I still think he's going to be a very good player. Like, the fact that he has carved out an NBA role with a shoulder that only, like, half works is a testament to how good he is as a talent. Like, you watch the flashes of the way he handles the ball, what his live dribble game is. If you would be able to add to that, like, basically a monster pull-up shooting threat, he would be an all-star right now. And that's what he was at Washington. He had that monster pull-up, like, game down to a T. It was yeah, unbelievable. And, like, the only the, – so in terms of the scouting, I liked Markel a lot. The only question you can have is, you know, what could you have revealed in that interview? What could you have revealed during your background checks? What could you have revealed during that workout that – he came in for. I remember being there for the portion of the workout that was available to media and going, oh man, he's, his shooting is awful today. And you just kind of chalked up. You went, well, you don't make draft decisions based off of one shooting day when you have an entire season worth of data to go back on. And I, I, I wrote it off. And you yeah. wonder, now with the benefit of what happened, should you go back and be like, we should have applied a lot more scrutiny to that. I, I will but, say, I talked to some people who saw him work out before the draft. Uh within NBA organizations. And they yeah. started to see that the jump shot was, it was changing. It was different. Yeah. Yep. And they did not like the path it was going down and they wanted to stop it. But uh, I don't think anybody, and it, he, he worked out. Yes. I, th I think he worked out for three teams and I've talked to a couple and I don't think anybody thought this is unrecoverable. 
Yes, nobody thought that Markel was going to turn out this way. Uh, they thought it was like, okay, we need to stop this before it happens. No, like the injury stuff, like nobody saw that being a thing. Uh, the there there were like some questions about like his uh, how how hard is he going to work? How much of a killer is he? I think that Boston did have that question. Uh, I think that that's been reported and just from you know, my conversations around the league. Like I, I do genuinely believe that they had Jason Tatum at number one on their board and probably uh, would have taken Jason at number one had they not been able to make that move. But I, I understand that like Lonzo ball, people think Lonzo was locked in at number two. I don't think he was like, I think that they probably would have taken Markel uh, if that option was available to them. And if Philly wanted Markel and there's no reason to not want, Markel based off of what he had done at Washington, what he'd been his last two years of high school and uh, you know, what his game looked like it would translate to the NBA as. I mean, it was to me, he was like a no brainer number one. And that comes as someone who like, I got shit for having Jason Tatum at number two in that draft. Like I was a huge Jason Tatum fan. And to me, it just wasn't even a question. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was one of the weirdest stories. And like I said, I, I supported the trade at the time, Um, but it is one where if you get it wrong, then it has, pretty drastic consequences and we're seeing that play out now we're seeing it play out now and it's bizarre to me that we've gone as you mentioned earlier from Markel Fultz uh, being the missing piece as a ball handler who can you know be a late game scorer next to Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid to a place where they do not have a point guard on this roster where that you might be starting Alec starting, Burks yeah you're going to be starting Howell Neto Alec Burks uh <laughs> Like, Shake Milton is not yep. a point guard, uh, but he played point guard at SMU, and I wonder if that's a better option, right? Like, this is – and by the way, we should talk about, like, some of these end-of-roster guys. Like, Shake Milton's been really good. Uh, Furkan Korkmaz has been better than what I think anyone could have anticipated uh, after they declined that option. Yeah. And look, like, some Matisse of these – Like, looks really good, too. Yeah. And, and some of these, you know, I, I guess the one saving grace, besides the Butler trade, is, you know, the Thibel pick. Asset management-wise, not great. But the scouting decision, I think, has turned out to be good. Before that, you had Landry Shamit, and you'd love to have Landry still on the team. Yep. But the scouting decision there was good. So two years in a row, you got you know Furkan Korkmaz is turning into an NBA player now, and he was the 24th or 26th pick in the draft, I forget. So you've had yep. some late first-round scouting hits, which has helped offset to a small degree some of the, the bigger swings and misses they've had of late. And they nailed Shake Milton late in the draft. I had Shake yep. Milton as a first-round grade, by the way. Uh, so I am... Very happy with what we have seen from Shake Milton so far, because that would have looked bad uh, if he goes 59 and I have a second, or I have a first round grade on him. Uh, I've gotten lucky with that so far this year because uh, another guy that ends up going undrafted that I had a late first round grade on was Lou Dort, and he looks like an NBA player. So yeah. I'm feeling okay about where I'm at in terms of evaluating. Um, two final questions here: Is there a move out there that you see? I guess that I'll go with three questions first. What do we think the ceiling is for this Philadelphia 76ers team right now? For this year? For this year, yes. So I think they can compete. I mean, we've spent the entire podcast basically dumping on them. I think they yeah. can compete against anyone other than the Bucks. Like, I look at Boston. First of all, Ben Simmons has been incredible defensively against Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in the matchups they've had. And Boston just has no real answer for Joel Embiid. They had one. It was Al Horford. We know the consequences of Al not being in Boston for the Sixers, which has not been great. But I think that's going to be a big loss in the playoffs as well. So I think, well, I think Boston has been the objectively better team, certainly the more consistent team. 
I think the Sixers match up pretty well against him. And Miami's been a fun matchup. Sixers blew Miami out once. Miami blew the Sixers out once. A couple other close games. But again, I think this is where Ben Simmons could be a real X factor. He's outside of one game where Jimmy Butler went off. Ben has blanketed Jimmy Butler pretty well. And he's made his life difficult. And that's another team that I think struggles to slow and beat down. So a lot of these teams I look at, you know, the teams that Sixers have really struggled with in the playoffs the last few years has been one anchored by Marcus Gasol and the other anchored by Al Horford. Players who did a good job of slowing Embiid down. And I think Embiid can have success against a lot of the top of the Eastern Conference. So I think they still have, you know, the funny thing is they could end up losing to Milwaukee in the second round of the playoffs rather than the third round just because of the seeding. And we could look at it as not making progress. When I think this is a team that still could, if the seeding was right, get to the Eastern Conference Finals just because I think they match up pretty well against a number of these different teams. I'm pretty worried against Toronto for what it's worth. Yeah, um, Toronto is, they're such a, a disciplined defensive team. And, and when you have, have that kind... they have someone that they can throw at Joel, too. Because you can yep, put Mark on Joel. Down. Like, yep. Serge is probably going to get buried a little bit against Joel, but he at least has length to make it tough around the basket for him. Like, they at least have enough size and enough strength now to cause issues there. Yeah, and, and that really is the blueprint for Joel. Have a guy who can stand him up on the first impact, give your, your perimeter defenders just enough time to dig down, and have smart yep. defensive players who can make those rotations. And Toronto is sort of like the archetype of that. Uh, so, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, my, obviously, like, they've been 3-1 and one against Boston this year. It's been pretty good. Like, they've, they've dealt well with the Celtics, weirdly, uh, for a team that I think is pretty disciplined. It's just kind of two entirely different styles, right? Uh, Philly's going to try and bruise you, whereas Boston is uh, just heavily switchable and is going to try and uh, just kind of be more skilled and more athletic than Philadelphia. I, I would yep. love to see that match up in the playoffs. Uh, Miami is just a weird one because they'll zone. Like they're, they're just going to zone Joel and that's going to cause problems for the shooting. I think I, I would not want to play Miami or Toronto right now based off of what we've seen from Philadelphia. And uh, if that's the case, I think they have some pretty real problems getting out of the second round uh, unless, yeah, unless I mean, something substantial changes. <laughs> I mean, Miami struggled a bit here of late. And I do, I do think the Sixers matchup. I, Miami, I'm less concerned about Miami, but I think it's all going to come down to whether or not the Sixers can avoid that four or five match or seating anyway. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, I think the, I think the big thing is whereas maybe you would have said the Sixers had a 35 or a 40 percent chance against the Bucks when the season started. Now it seems like a five or 10 percent chance, and that's really where I see the difference. Yeah, I'd probably even go a little bit higher than that. Like I'd say maybe like 15 to 20 just because I really like the matchup for Philadelphia. But you're still talking about Philadelphia probably being like a minus 400, or uh, I'm sorry, Milwaukee being like minus 400 to 500 favorite in that series, Yeah, uh, yep. which is still pretty substantial. Uh, yep. Second question, how do you, is there a specific player out there this offseason that you see can fix this Philadelphia roster? Oh, that's a good question. I am not sure I have thought that far ahead yet. Uh, I, would have to, I would have to get back to you. I have not thought about the free agent class or, or even a trade class. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's free agent. I think it's a trade. No, like, I mean, they, they would be limited to, I think they would be limited to the uh, taxpayer mid-level because I think they would yes. be over the apron. So, yeah, there's not a whole lot to work with there. That's a, that's a good question. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm, I have a great answer for you. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to, like, see if there's one guy. I wonder if Charlotte, because Charlotte's probably got a shot to have a center opening. Like, they're still going to have Cody Zeller under contract next year, but he's expiring after next year. Uh, I wonder if, like, Al Horford for Terry Rozier or something is, like, kind of a move just to make rosters fit better 
kind of deal because Charlotte has uh, Devontae Graham now. They uh, have, I mean, really, I don't know what else they have. Like, I know what they have, but uh, I would not feel great about having Terry Rozier and Devontae Graham whenever Devontae is your guy. Uh, I know that they've played those two a reasonable amount together, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't love that when I'm trying to get back to the playoffs necessarily. Um, So I wonder if that makes like a semblance of some sense. Uh, And then I'm trying to, there was another one I had come up with uh, that, you know, it involves Philadelphia not having to take on like a wild amount of like giving up asset capital to do it. Like, I still wonder if there's something to be done with Oklahoma city too. I guess yeah. like, you know, move, move Al Horford to Oklahoma city. If Oklahoma city decides uh, to move Steven Adams or something this summer, uh, cause he, he'll be on an expiring deal next year as well. So that's a, it's a tough answer, but I think that there are trades out there that exist for Al Horford to where you can move him without giving up a wild amount of draft capital, which I feel like is probably not the opinion that most people have. Yeah. I think that's probably fair. And to be fair, the Sixers don't have a wild amount of draft capital anyway. Although right. once once we get to the summer, then the Stepien rule is no longer in effect because it's the 2020 pick they owe, so it opens up a little bit. Also, it's like not impossible that they could move that they could keep this year's pick right now. Like yeah, if they that's fall true. off a that's little true. bit, that pick is protected one to twenty. I believe that they're like twenty first right now. Well it uh, is the so they, their pick goes out no matter what, but they could get another pick coming back, which is the yeah. OKC uh twenty twenty first. Yeah. If it's it's top twenty protected correct. Yep. Yeah and currently they are in I believe twenty first. Uh, and I believe that they're basically battling with Oklahoma City and tied yeah. with Oklahoma City for that like 20th slash 21st yep. spot. They are um, tied at 20th at 35 and 22. Yep. That's really funny. Uh, so I think that they're probably going to end up, you know, 22, 23, just because like we talked about earlier, their schedule gets easier. And it should lead to at least 15 out of these 25 wins or out of these 25 games left. Uh, the last question I have for you is, Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid, who is the most important player to build around long-term for the 76ers? So it's interesting that you phrased it that way, because I think there are a whole bunch of different questions that sort of touch on that. In terms of guys, I think the highest impact right now, just on a, 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 like, at their best, I think Embiid has the highest impact right now. But I think if you looked at who has been the most consistent player this year, I think or I think Simmons has been more consistent on night night basis than Embiid. He's, 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 his lows have been higher, even if his highs hasn't ha- haven't been as high. But when you start talking about the future, it gets interesting. They're not that much different in age. Embiid's 25, Simmons is 23. But I think when everybody looks at Embiid, you don't see as like you could see Ben Simmons being a top 20 player in this league for a decade. And with the way he's kept his body, and I mean. <laughs> What I'm saying now could change if the back injury is worse than we all fear. But, like, he's been a bill of health for the most part his entire career outside of the one fluke injury with his foot. He's been an Iron Man. He's in tremendous shape. And you could see him aging better than you can see Embiid, who's had two surgeries on his feet, chronic knee pain, uh, stress fracture in his back, like all kinds of lower body injuries right. that look like they could really – I mean, just look at Embiid physically from where he is now and where he was at Kansas, and it's night and day. And part of that, I think, is a toll of lower body injuries. And part of that is a toll of, you know, he's 45, 50 pounds heavier than he was back then, too. Yep. If you had to pick one. 
And by the way, I don't think they have to pick one. I would no, keep them I, both. I, but... I literally just wrote today that they should not be looking to trade either of them. So I want to make that very clear. Chris, this is a theoretical clear. question. <laughs> it's very tough for me to go away from the player who I think is the better player. And right now I do still think that is Joel, even though I think it's closer than it used to be. But I think if you if you start factoring in injuries, it would I, I might have to go Ben. I might have to go Ben. I think the so, more interesting question is which one do you think has a higher value on the trade market? Because I think Ben is very divisive around the league still. Like I think there are some people who will look at him and say he's a regular season player. I think that I don't know how many teams believe that, but I think there are people in teams that believe that still. And to be fair, I mean he was a, a bit role player offensively in the playoffs in the second round last year. I think his defense translates very well to the playoffs. His offense is still to be determined. But I also think there are a lot of people who would be scared to take the risk of Embiid and his injury and what that means. So I think there could be a lot of fluctuating evaluations from a lot of different teams. I don't think there would be a strong consensus on this. I don't think there would be a strong consensus on this either. I will say, I think I would take Ben. And I say that knowing that Joel is currently a top, let's call him 12 player in the NBA. He's uh, still probably a top two defender. Top two defender for sure. Yes. Uh, along with Rudy. And, like, I think there's a pretty real case that because of Joel's offense and just the ability he has on offense to punish defenders, whereas Rudy is a lot more reliant, uh, that it's easier to keep Joel on the floor in playoff games than it is Rudy and thus, you know, potentially making him a more impactful defensive player due to his offense, even though that's kind of like circular reasoning that might not make total sense. Uh, I'm just like kind of. Yep. You know, does that make sense? Am I crazy? No, I, I, I hear where you're coming from, yeah. Uh, I really think that Ben is on the cusp of being just exceptionally great. Uh, it has nothing to do with the fact that, like, I don't think Joel is great. It has nothing to do with the fact that I think that, um, you know, he's not going to be, like, an absolute superstar going forward. Like, he, he is. He absolutely is. I legitimately believe, you know, you threw out top 20 for Ben. I think he's going to be a top 10 player, like, as of next year. I really yeah, do. Yeah, and that was less a peak and more just, like, in 10 years, he could still be a top 20 player. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. I like think I, I, He's I still, still think, close. Yeah. I still think if you would if you could guarantee me that Joel Embiid will look like Joel Embiid in five years, yeah. I think I'd take him. Because I still think he has room to grow, too. But it's just I, I would worry a lot about what he's going to look like in three, four, five years. Uh, and I don't like worrying about that because I like watching him play, and I hope he has a long prime, but I do worry about that. I think it's reasonable to worry about that, too. Uh, the only reason I take Ben is because I think that Ben, between the elite-level defense, and I agree with you, he should be at the very least second-team all-defense and should get very real consideration for first-team all-defense. I haven't, like, gone through the names that I would, you know, have there off the top of my head right now. but Yeah, that, he, that's the only reason why I had, just because I – let's yeah. put it this way. He is playing at the level of a first-team all-defense player. Yeah. yeah, and I can't get – like, I – I can't imagine him being outside of my top four forwards on defense right now. Um, Then you throw in the fact that he's gotten better at driving to the basket. I think he's gotten more fearless at drawing fouls over the course of this season. Uh, Philadelphia, I think, has kind of figured out better ways to utilize him than just being a pure point guard. Uh, In the same way that we saw Blake Griffin morph into like a top three player who has, I believe, two top five MVP finishes. I think we're going to see Ben turn into like a super, like a souped up version of Blake Griffin 
which sounds impossible, but I think is like very much in the cards. If we didn't even talk about Brett Brown, I guess, but like, I, I don't love the way that Brett has utilized him up until like midway through this season. Uh, I think that if Brett or another coach continues to utilize him in the manner that we see when Joel is out or in the manner that we see whenever he utilizes Ben as a screener more late in games, I think that's when we're going to see Ben really flourish. And also when you get a ball handler to play off of him, that's better than Alec Burks. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Derek, tell the people where they can find your podcast. Tell the people where they can find your work, everything that is going on in your life. I mean, Twitter. Well, not everything going on in my life. I need a little little personal time. Uh, But at Derek Bodner NBA on Twitter, The Athletic, where you can find the podcast and the written content. That's it. Awesome. Uh, I will have a big board coming out this week for the NBA draft. I'm still working through some uh, final touches on the NBA rookie scale rankings. We're going to have those in the next couple of weeks, I think, uh, for just the absolute final uh, rankings. So keep it locked at the athletic for that. But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.